to follow along in the booklets that we've given. They're called Foundations. If you don't have a book, you're welcome to step out and grab one in the foyer. Or there are handouts that are available, and those handouts are right at the back door, and we're, we're going through those together. If you take your Bibles and head over to Philippians, while you're turning to Philippians 2, let me just do a few uh, thoughts with you. Just get your brains working. Name something you'd find on a breakfast buffet. Eggs would be there. What else? Waffles? I don't think they have waffles. Hash browns, bacon, sausage. Anybody else getting hungry right about now? They always talk about it. They said cereal, melons, coffee, juice, potatoes or hash browns, sausage, bacon, and number one was going to be... Yeah, you know that one. Name a professional sport where players make lots of money. Baseball's there. Basketball's there. Football's there. Soccer's there. Tennis, they didn't put down. Okay, golf should be there. The first one, uh, maybe you understand. The first answer, darts. Is there a professional darts thing? Really? Really? Okay. Then there's, oh, tennis is there. Soccer, basketball, baseball, number one was football. Now, speaking of sports that make lots of money, you probably know this. Do you know there's an American Cornhole League? A professional thing, right? Right? We, we were desperate for watching something. And so about three Sundays ago, we turned something on in the afternoon, and they were doing the East Coast semifinals for the championship. And these two different ladies were competing and two men. Do you, do you remember this? The purse for winning was $200,000. I'm thinking, I'm in the wrong field. I should be throwing bean bags for $200,000. Name a common component you find in candy bars. Chocolate's going to be there. Peanuts. Caramel's going to be there. Okay. Here's what they had. They had coconut. Then it should be called, then it should be called a garbage bar. Okay. There was sugar, almonds, caramel, and peanuts and chocolate was number one. Place where a husband would take his wife for their anniversary and she'd be upset he took her there. Football game. Football game. <laughs> What's that? Golfing? Somebody said bowling? What did you say? Fishing? Hockey game? Are you speaking from experience? Yes. <laughs> My wife would say nothing, and she's speaking from experience. I didn't take her anywhere. Okay. <laughs> Your first date was the hockey game. Wow. Wow. Yeah, he, yeah, he, he, he impressed her some way because they've been together all these years. Wow. Absolutely. You got any other places? <laughs> Yeah, but if he really needs it, you know, she might be she might be enthused. A car show, how, his parents' house for their anniversary, a bowling alley, a hunting trip, a sporting event, a men's club or bar, and number one was a very tacky restaurant. Okay, here we go. What do Americans believe? This is taken from a 2020 survey that was done by these ministries about different things and just asking in general. I found it interesting. The Bible is God's word. What do you think the percentage of Americans say they believe that the Bible's God's word? Okay, okay. They said 41%. They answered this way. The, they said that Jesus is the son of God. Okay. Uh, 48 so that he's the son of God. Um, but 52% he's a great teacher. By the way, he's the son of God did not mean that he is sinlessly perfect. They just believe he's the son of God. Okay. Um, going on, there is life after death in either hell, heaven, or purgatory. That was a little bit more, 65%. What gets scary is what do the other 35% believe? Okay. The devil is a real character. Think majority? Only 35%. 35%. Good works play a part in determining whether a person gets into heaven or not. Okay, that's going to be a little bit higher. You got 52%. Now, here's the one that really throws me. 
Okay, those in the survey who claim to be evangelicals. Evangelicals are those who basically claim born again. Born again. Of those that said, good works help me get into heaven, 42% of those who claim to be born again say that their good works are also helpful to get into heaven. The the thought that you walk away after you look at this is, any? What What do you think? What's that? Bad teaching? Any other thoughts come in your mind? What's that? Man, I'm bad. You're right. You know, we need the Lord to help us to get them to the Lord. Um, several thoughts come to mind, but the one thought that really comes to mind is, man, we need to be doing a good job. This is what we're running against in Bible studies when you do them. You've got to go do an extremely good job of explaining the truth. And for a lot of us, when we do the Bible studies, we're going to run into people that really don't have basic knowledge. And so it's really important that you spend time and get them to understand basic Bible doctrine. And so it's real, it's our, we've got a real big task in front of us. And so what we're doing is trying to help you to just have the basic information. For a lot of you, I know you're beyond this, the vast majority of you, that you could do this in your sleep. But uh, we still want to just refresh our minds. It says in First John's, I've written you before, and I'm writing you again uh, as he goes through multiple epistles. And the thought is that we, at times, need to just do some review and just remind ourselves of basic doctrine. So we've been going through a lot of them, and uh, we're in this section called sanctification. In that booklet or the pages that we give a handout, it's by the back door. If you came in and didn't get it, it's like four or five pages uh, that are photocopied of the book. And by the way, the handout has different page numbers than, uh, than what I'll be putting up on the board, because it's the first edition. We're dealing with the second edition book. And so you'll, you'll get the basic idea if you even just use the handout. But we're going through and we're talking talking about this doctrine, and I know I'm spending more time on this doctrine than most, but I think it's critical that we just make sure that we fully understand sanctification because it is where we're at, and we want to make sure that people that we're training fully understand, especially that last, that one idea of how many people think works are apart. We need to really make sure they understand where the works and where does faith, how do they fit together. Sanctification, if you were to define it with just a simple two-word definition, what would you have? Set apart. Thank you. If you were to say, okay, the words that are used are, you know, we give you the Greek and the Hebrew just for your information, and they are always translated holy or sanctified. When it's used of people, the English word for the hagioi, the, the holy ones, what, what's it translated usually in our English Bibles? Saints. Okay, that's where you get the term. The main idea is twofold. There's a negative and there's a positive. We are set apart from what? From sin. Okay, anything ungodly. What, what was the flip side? Okay, two or four unto God are the things that are good. Very good, excellent. There are two parts or two phases of sanctification. Um, I was in a Bible study on, uh, on Wednesday night at a church that we were visiting. There, they suggested going through some of the same material. There's three, and I, and I thought it was good just to bring it up, so we'll, we'll hit that. The two parts, and we've been doing it by a picture. The first part is a one-time experience or act that happens in your life where you are placed in Christ, therefore you are declared legally before God a holy person. In our theological terms, we're talking about when you're born again. What do we call that? Position. Your position before God. Positional sanctification. Then the other one that we've been discussing is the idea of you're growing in the Lord. After you're born again, you start growing up, walking in your faith, and it requires that you give daily attention to being holy as God is holy. This term, we've had, uh, we've had another P a progressive or the other one that we said was uh, practical. And so what you're experiencing is progressive sanctification. If you're born again and whenever that born again experience happened, that was your position in Christ. You are holy. Now you work on bringing that out in your life. There is the other one that I mentioned that was brought out on Wednesday evening in the Bible study we were at, and it is perfect, the third phase. What is perfect sanctification? It's perfection is what it is. When does it happen? 
Okay, when we get to heaven. Um, you, brother, were mentioning that somebody in your family had the idea of perfection or perfect was in this life. There is teaching in some churches, and it was very, very popular, uh, especially in the early 18, uh, 1900s, and it was called the second work of grace was some of the terms. It was called... Um, uh, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and it was a teaching that in this life we could come to a point where we were perfected. We would no longer sin. And so there was that teaching that you arrive at some time in your life where all of a sudden you, you are perfected. We've been pointing out that from the Bible that, that the Apostle Paul, for instance, he still said, oh, wretched man that I am, I'm still doing the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. Romans 7 was his battle. And so what we understand the Bible to teach is that this is when, perfection is when the sin nature is completely eradicated, and you become perfect inside and out. In fact, during this perfect, there is some phase of it that your body is going to be perfected. Okay, where you'll be glorified and have, have a perfect body. Now that perfect body will, uh, let me back up. The sin nature eradicated is when you get into heaven. The perfect body will be when you are raptured or resurrected. Now that could be the first time we enter heaven if we're raptured here, um, uh, from here. So there's that idea of perfection that will come. We, we've pointed this out, and I know I'm reviewing things, and you've got this down pat, but again, rehearsing isn't bad. Three reasons, three S's, why it is hard to live a holy life. Sin nature itself, Satan, satanic forces, the, the society we live in, the world we live in, okay? And so we talked about that, our sin nature we're going to have until we get into heaven, society, the world we live in. Christ, our God described in, in 1 John, love not the world, neither the things in the world. And he goes on and says, this is not of the Father. And we've talked about the spiritual forces, that there are, we, we battle them. Now we ended up, or we, uh, in our review, we ended here, and we'll pick up now new stuff after this. It is, the reason that we're supposed to be concerned about our growth is we gave you several reasons. It's the will of God, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. We pointed out this is how you become more like Christ, that Romans 8, we've been saved, we've been predestinated to be conformed to the image of Christ. Failure to do so, failure to grow in your life, you'll reap what you sow, there will be tragic consequences. We owe it to God, we are bought with a price, therefore glorify God and your body and your spirit, which are purchased by God. Uh, because we can. Okay, so with that in mind, we've been, we're at the section of this whole area of sanctification, is how do we get sanctified? And the author is trying to remind the readers, and you and your Bible study you want to make sure that the person you're going through is just getting this down pat, and how everything blends together, the two sides of the coin. God's part, your part. The idea that they've, uh, uh, they've talked about time and again in the book, and given a variety of passages is, remember, sanctification is a work of God. It cannot be accomplished without God working in your life. In fact, he asked the Galatians, are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are you made perfect by the flesh? The answer to that question is what? If you began in the Spirit, are you perfected by your flesh, by your good works? No, the answer was very clearly a no, God produces the holiness. And then we went over several verses that talk about how we're sanctified by the work of God. It is God working in us, but do we have a role in it? Do we have responsibility? And that brings us to number two. It requires our cooperation, our participation. We looked at the verses, we need to walk in the Spirit who enables us to be sanctified, but we have to walk with Him, yielding our members to Him. God produces holiness and growth in us as we expose ourselves to certain tools that God will use to carve perfection, to chisel off the, uh, the stone of that in, in our life that is bad or to heat us up. What were some of the tools that were used by God? Or God uses in our lives to mature us, to perfect us, to mature us. What's that? Trials is one. His word is one. Prayer is one. Thank you. Okay, other people. And then I added a fifth one. 
music, okay? And so we said, okay, all these different things that are basic trials, and, and there's more, but these are the basic ones that are clearly given in Scripture that God uses. So in order for God to bring about sanctification, growth in my life, I need to expose myself to the Word of God. That's my part of listening to the teaching, getting into a Bible study, reading my Bible, meditating, or even what's uh, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might... Okay, so that's my part. God's part is giving me the strength. We need to pray, okay? Jesus told the disciples, pray that you enter not into temptation. Thank you. We must respond the right way to our trials as God is building us. We need to respond with rejoicing, with submitting, with letting him work in our lives. We must listen to the counsel. God, give us, give us one another. But what good is it if we don't listen to the other person that may come and say, I'm really concerned about something? I want to help you. And so then the other one is godly music. We need to listen to music that promotes God as well as presents accurate truths. And so we can use these tools. They are helpful, but only if we apply them. In fact, um, if we went to Philippians 2, I asked you to go there. Here is a passage that he's talking about growth. And the author in the book that, if you have your book in front of you, he's asking you to ask the new convert you're dealing with, how does God and you work together according to this verse? Looking at the verse, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in, as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Two sides of this coin of, of sanctification. What is God's part? What is your part? What, what do you see in this passage? Anything? Okay, what's that? How so? Okay, as we learn what God's Word says, we walk in it. Excellent. Anything else you see in the passage? Okay, that, that obedience factor? Excellent. All the time, not when you're around just certain people. Where do you get that out of this passage? Not only in my presence. Not only in my presence. Okay, but keep on. What else do you see in the text? Anything else that you find that you would share? Make sure that they catch this in the Bible study. Okay. Okay, God will work in you to help you. Uh, how long does God work? How do you know that from this verse? Okay, the tense of the verb. For it is God which works, he's the idea, you're gonna, it's very clear, it keeps on working you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Anything else that you see in the text? Okay, how do you get that? Okay, with fear and trembling, which required, excellent, I didn't get that part, that's excellent. Anything else? Here's my feeble thoughts, and you may write some of it down so that you can explain, or you may choose uh, the better thoughts that were already given. God gave each of the beloved, each one of the beloved. This is God's part. God gave each one of these people salvation, which is very clear, wherefore my beloved, okay, that God has given the salvation to you that you need to work out. They are to show his true salvation is really in them. Work out has the idea, bring to completion, to bring to completion, okay? It's a present imperative, which means it's required of God. It's a command is the imperative. Which, by the way, is the middle voice means you do this for yourself. This is something you do in relationship to yourself. It's not that you do just for your kids, for your spouse. You bring about growth in your own life. You work this out. You, you keep this going. Um, another thought was this is for each and all believers. My beloved is plural. And then the idea of each and every one of you is to work out salvation. This is to be done all the time, which was already mentioned, no matter who's around. God keeps on. And the, the word for God which works in you, it's the word for energizing. It's the work of giving power, giving strength, uh, giving, giving the ability. God is working in us so we want to do good. And God is working in us so we can do good. 
Okay? And so it's a tremendous text, fabulous text, filled with lots of truth. So if we, were to, if we were to just make a parallel, let's just do this. It's not in your book, but let's make a parallel. Okay? You're trying to make sure that the person you're, you're talking to, they understand God's role, your role. Let's, let's make an illustration. What is, like in your family, you as parenting your kids, what is God's role to us as his kids the same as you parenting to kids? Okay, is discipline involved? Okay. Anything else? Direction is involved? Great. Anything else? What's that? Being consistent. Which ones? Uh, parent or child? Yeah, yeah. Which, by the way, God is consistent, which is fabulous. Do you see any other, any other truths that you would say, okay, just like your parents, da-da-da-da-da-da, this is what God does with you, and this is how you respond. Cindy? Okay. Okay, great, great. What? Somebody said something. What do you mean by that? Fabulous, fabulous, okay. Um, let, let me just walk through, you know, you guys, you, excellent thoughts. Let, let's take the analogy, if you're trying to teach this to somebody so that they fully understand. Where do the kids get their life? Okay, let, let's leave, let's, let's be very earthly here. Where does life come from for, family, for kids? Okay, the life comes through the parents, Right? Okay, the, every kid's life comes via the parents. Okay, that's your, uh, we're, we're doing this parallel. And, and it only happens, the experience of birth only happens, amen, ladies, right? One time. Okay, okay. Um, it's a permanent relationship, right? Your, per, you, your kids are permanently your kids. Now, you may not get along, okay, but they are permanently your kids, Okay, as we go through, the parents provide, this is what you were mentioning, the parents provide food, didn't, didn't you? Okay, what else did you provide for them? Clothing, shelter, okay. So you're providing the essentials that would help growth to take place, right? Yes? Okay, without you providing shelter, clothing, food, what's happening to the kid? They can't grow. They're going to die. Okay, so you're providing. The parent is providing. But do the kids still have a part in taking in the nourishment? Okay, the kids aren't going to grow if they don't take in the nourishment. You provided it. You paid for it. You're, you're, you're trying to feed the hollow legs of those teenage boys, but they still have to eat. Okay? The parents give rules and direction for the kids' benefit. Is that a fact? The rules and the direction that you give is to help them. Yes, no? Okay, keep them safe, help them to become, you know, um, mature members of society, functional. Okay, you're giving all those things. As kids grow, parents are dealing more with inner issues than external, more with attitudes. Is that true as you're, as you're parenting? Initially, you're dealing with just don't touch, don't touch, different things, and giving guidance. But then you're dealing more with thought life, attitudes as they mature and they get a little bit older. It is better for the kids to respond well to their parents' direction and correction. Yes? Okay? That you may obey your parents, that it may be well with you, and you may live long, okay? And so the parallels, the kids' responses to the parents affect the fellowship. The relationship is permanent, but the fellowship between the parents and the kids is affected, basically how the kids respond to you. So we have all those parallels between your parenting and your kids and God and you in this process of sanctification. 
You can develop it however you want, but it gives you an idea of what you're trying to get across to the individual. This is a work of God. I do have to some responsibilities. Sanctification works from the inside out. This is so important because this is the issue Paul dealt with in the New Testament churches. Let's, let's do our notes here. Um, in your, your page 171, he'll say this. Having high standards of conduct is a good thing, but... It is entirely possible to have and follow a strict list of do's and don'ts and still be carnal. Do you understand what he's getting at? Let let me rephrase this. Let me rephrase the ask question. Can you think of any group in the Bible who were guilty of doing this? The Pharisees, right? Did they have a strict rules that people had to do? Okay, and they were saying, if you do all of my do's and don'ts, you're going to be spiritual. And it wasn't working. Okay, not only was it the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, okay, and they had all kinds of things about Sabbath day activities and events and when you pray and how you wash your hands and all kinds of list of rules. Okay, but also the, new, the legalists that invaded the churches. The people that came in, and they had lists of rules. And they took some from the Jewish faith, they brought them back in, and if you do these rules, it'll make you spiritual. Okay? That, that uh, in, the, in the religion I grew up in, okay, there was, before I got born again, our church that I went to had all kinds of rules. We had to have confession. We had to eat, not eat meat on Fridays. We had to do whatever the priest said. Okay, we had, and there was all these rules and regulations, but it didn't make me spiritual. It made me clever. Do you know what that means? Do those things just enough to get by and still, yeah, live for God on Sunday and live for the devil the rest of the week type thing. And besides, whatever I could do, whatever I did wrong, I could just go to the priest and have him forgive me, and it would be okay if I said five Hail Marys and two Our Fathers. It was a very convenient system, okay, which makes it very popular with people. And so this is where we're going with this part of the book, is it's not just doing things that makes us spiritual. Okay, and so uh, there's, a, there's a whole thought here, and this is the predominant thought. God wants a change of heart, not just a change of habits. Because we can change habits and still not change our hearts. By the way, as a parent, what do you want in your kids? Do you want to be speaking and having them respond with their heart or just their habit? You want their heart. You want the kid's heart. You want them to absolutely respect and obey you out of a heart attitude, not just because you're here. Because then what happens? When you're not here, the wrong decisions. Or when all of a sudden they reach a certain age, where do they go? They, they, they trash everything that you've taught them as far as spiritual truth. And so critical, critical thought. He says we are all changed, okay, in a moment in the same image. The word is metamorpho, okay, the idea of metamorphosis, which is a change on the inside, not just on the outside. Sanctification is not merely looking holy. Sanctification is great, excellent, becoming holy, being holy inside and out. And so if you take your Bibles, and what he's asked us to do in this lesson is jump to a few passages just to elaborate upon this. Go to Isaiah. It's in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 1. And the author of the material that we're giving you is saying, look at this text and tell in this text, okay, God repeatedly stated he desires a godly heart, not mere conduct. Explain according to these verses, and he gives you several in this lesson, how do they point out you have to have a change of heart, not just a change in action. Uh, let's, let's pick up in chapter 1 of Isaiah, verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, said the Lord? I am full of burnt offerings of rams and fat of fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of the he-goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this at your hand to tread down my courts? 
Bring no more vain oblations. Incense has become an abomination unto me. The new moon, Sabbath, calling of assemblies, I cannot, uh, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when, I, when you make many prayers, I will not hear you. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Seek to do evil. Okay, you're doing the Bible study. You just read this really provocative passage. What, what would you say? What would you write down? In your own words, what is God saying about works versus heart? Uh, say it real loud. Great. Any other thoughts? Any other ways you'd phrase it? He doesn't want insincerity. Go ahead. He hates hypocrisy. Excellent. Anything else? Think this through. Who required them to make the sacrifices? Who required them to set aside the feast days? God had. Now, why does he say get rid of it? Yeah. Yeah. If we're going through the motions, we might as well not do it. Okay. So you, can, you have all kinds of thoughts there. Excellent thoughts that you've shared. Uh, again, I just put in a bunch of these. Although God had ordered, he did not want the Jews to simply give sacrifices like in, with insincerity or in hypocrisy. It didn't mean anything. He called, and I, to me this was really potent in the passage. He calls, he calls going to church on Sunday morning vain oblations, an abomination, and iniquity to me. It just, in other words, God finds it disgusting if we go through the motions without the heart. But that's provocative when we think about our worship this morning. Is it our heart or just the habit? God said he was weary of all of it when no longer answer their prayers. That's potent. Instead, they were to wash and make clean their hearts, put away or cease from all the evil. They were to focus on learning to do well. That's in verse 17, and I didn't read it. Learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widows. In other words, let your religion be real on an everyday life, not just the ceremony, not just the pomp and circumstance, but let it be real. In other words, they were to change their hearts. Let's pick another passage, and I wrote it up here for you. Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near to me with their mouth, with their lips they honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of man, etc., etc., etc. Any, any other thoughts? Same thoughts? Okay, no wisdom in which way? Okay. Okay, if it's not based upon his word, he's just talking about the truth is far from them. They're not learning the fear of the Lord. Basic thoughts, I think you, you would say the same thing. Although the Jews came to worship and say the right things, okay, they weren't really close to the Lord. And so he's condemning for it. He, you know, their worship activities, their speech, in parallel to you and me, what good is our singing this morning if our hearts aren't right with God? Does that make sense? Okay. What good is our praying? We've got beautiful prayers. And we use lofty terms. But if it's done in hypocrisy, how does God view it? He, yeah, he doesn't. He won't answer it. It's just disgusting. Ken? Oh, okay. Got it. Good, good, good. We're doing it tonight. We're doing communion. Is God pleased that we do communion? Yeah, in fact, who told us to do it? Okay. But how would it be frustrating? Did he write the, uh, the Corinthians? What did he say? Okay. What, did he say? what word was it? Um, I'm trying to think of the word that he warns them about. Oh, um, if you do it unworthily, unworthily, okay? Do you remember, it's un, none of us are worthy. What's he getting at doing it unworthily? 
yeah, I got to be right. Do it with a respect. Do it with reverence. Do it with thanksgiving. Not just the motions. That's the idea. Okay? And if we do communion wrong, what did he tell the Corinthians? That's because some of you did this wrong. That's why some of you are sick. Yeah, yeah, okay, good, good analogy. Thanks, Ken, for bringing that up. That's so appropriate. This is from the book of Amos. In the book of Amos, I found it interesting, the words he uses, and I didn't write it down up here, so you've got to turn in your Bible. You've got to find Amos. In my Bible, it's page 936, okay, if that helps you at all. Amos chapter 5. He uses a phrase here that I wanted just to highlight a phrase because it catches me off guard um, in, in the translation I'm using. Okay, some of you with, with more updated translations it may make quicker sense. In Amos chapter 5, verse 21, here, right in the middle of the, con- uh, the conversation, I hate, I despise your feast days, I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. What does he mean by that? What does he mean, I will not smell in your solemn assemblies? What's that? It's the idea that what I do smell is absolutely, you know, disgusting. It's it's just, it's a phrase with the idea that it's this idea. I am not going to, you know how you, (gasps) you do that with a turkey? Yesterday I walked in the house, chocolate chip cookies. Did you put peanut M&Ms in them? Oh, well. Okay, chocolate chip cookies and I can eat peanut M&M's on the side. Okay, you breathe in and it's a delight. He's saying, this is like what you're doing, it's like walking into an outhouse. That's his, that's his comparison. And he goes on, he makes this comment, he says, though you offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them, neither will, will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beast." They're giving not just a skinny cow. They're giving good stuff. And he goes on and he says, take, away, take it away from me, the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your vials, but let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. In other words, the same thing we've been saying. Same thing. This idea, God is displeased with their ritualism, with the, even, if in, even if they're giving good stuff. Why is that? Because they observed, but they were not righteous. So religious but not righteous. Does that ever happen in Christianity as a whole? Christendom. Does that happen? People are involved with rituals but not a relationship? Yeah, okay. And so he's condemning it. God wants, in other words, where he says at the end of that passage, verse 24, I want your personal righteousness to be like a mighty stream. It's flowing, it's effective, it's powerful in your life. So then we have this. This is David. Do you remember when David is saying this passage, Psalm 51? Anybody remember? We're going to be looking at it in a couple of few weeks. It's right after his experience, his infidelity with Bathsheba, and he comes and he's pointed out, you are the man. This is his confession, repentance psalm. For you desire not sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. You delight not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These things you will not despise. My paraphrase of all that. So what do we get out of it? Same thing, but any additional thoughts? Jeremy, this, I think this takes us back to what you said a moment ago, a little bit ago. That humility. This is humility at its peak. And even when we're making confession and trying to be right with God... What are people? Let me throw this out to you. People come to church. They're harboring some hidden sin. What might they do to appease God rather than repent and change? A bigger offering. Anything else? Some service of some sort? Yeah, yeah. And please, I don't want to make, make you feel paranoid, but I've run into people that have done this. They get up and they give the grandiose testimonies. Or they, you know, they, tremendous show of something outward. But he says, hey, listen, God doesn't care about the outward if there's not something true 
inside. Okay, and so David, his song of repentance, he knew he couldn't get right with God without, with all these religious rituals. He had to have a change of heart. True repentance has got to be the case. A change of heart, not just religious stuff. Really, really, really provocative. Here's one. Uh, this is in, a, in the New Testament. He would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Um, here we go. Paul's prayer is for them to experience the help and the power of the Holy Spirit. It would be directed to the inner man. The heart is the issue. The heart. Keep on driving this home with the person you're talking about. It's all about the heart. This is the passage that ladies, uh, the way they win their husbands who are not following the Lord. This is the passage that basically an application says, don't bang them over the head with Bible verses. Don't put the passage, the memory verse in between his sandwich, you know, that he can't miss it. Don't pin notes of Bible verses on his clothing, but rather what is the most important thing you can do? What is going to make the biggest impact upon that person who's unsaved? Yeah, the genuineness of the wife and in the wife, therefore, focus where? On the makeup? On the sex appeal? On the attire? No, he goes on, he says, it's not about your plating of your hair, the wearing of gold, putting on of apparel. <clears throat> Let it be what? The heart the hidden person, the one that we don't see. And especially he points out the ornament or the jewelry of a meek and quiet spirit, which in the sight of God is great price. And that goes contrary to what our society says. Okay, our society and our, our, and our tendencies. So he says, really work on the meek and quiet spirit. Again, we're right back to the heart. Everything is the heart. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart. They are which defiles man. Now this is whose words? It's Jesus' words, yeah. This is Jesus when he is confronted by the Pharisees who are upset that his disciples didn't wash their hands a certain way. And they weren't following ritual. And Jesus' response is, it's not what comes from the outside in that corrupts. Because where is corruption already? It's in the heart. Right, right. He goes on. He condemned them for keeping so many rules. His point is, we already have corruptness in our heart. Our speech reveals it. Our speech reveals our heart when we gossip, when we speak out in anger, or when we're unkind. What do people need, therefore? A change of the heart. A change of the heart. Yeah. And then he gives us, I think this is the last one, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the fruits of, uh, are the issues of life. And you understand this, that our hearts play a big role in how we respond, how we act. So we have to give attention to our hearts. That's, that's our, where we value things. This is how we view people. It's from the inside. And so not just on the outside, let's work on our hearts. Let's make sure we have a change of heart. Now, with that in mind, a couple thoughts here. God desires a change of heart which in turn will produce a change of habit. Do you agree with that? If your heart is really focused on the Lord, will that affect your outward actions? Yes, okay. How does the fact, this fact, affect your understanding of your own sanctification? By the way, the way that it's phrased, it threw me. I wasn't exact, exact, so I went at it. I don't know the way I answered this question is the right way or the wrong way. But just food for thought. How does the fact that you know it's a heart issue. How does that affect you in your sanctification? We're trying to get thinking going now. If you had to write it out this way, I will... What would you say? Go ahead. Oh, your, your attitude towards the politicians. Upset that you're not that you're not producing what you said and are signed up to do. Right. Okay. 
and making your political speech to God. And God looks and says, Yeah, okay, okay. So how does that, with, it, with that analogy, then what, is, what does that place upon you? What does that do for you? Okay. In the worship and things like that. Excellent. Okay. Good, good. Good analogy. I appreciate that. Anybody have any other thoughts here? Go ahead. Julie? That's what, that's what that Philippian passage talks about. Yeah. 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 Oh, excellent. I don't know if you heard all the way. She says that this makes her to be think about more dependence upon the Lord, because her heart doesn't want to do things at times. God work in my heart to will to do things. Cindy, was your hand up? Okay. Okay. Your motives. You examine motives. Okay, good. Good. Any other thoughts you want to throw in here? Yes, sir. Going along with what Cindy said, being very aware of when I'm involved in ministry or doing something mm. for the Lord and self, self-recognition comes into play, being aware that when, when that need to have that switch happens. Got it. Is that easy to do? Is to get to do things for recognition or because you like it rather than for the Lord? Okay, with those, maybe we're all thinking the same way. I thought I was confused by the question, but I wrote these things. Therefore, I will focus more upon feeding my inner man. And it goes back to what you just said, Julie. I don't have the ability to change me, but the strength to change me comes from God and his word is the most powerful tool he has that he uses. I will be more careful of getting caught up and of, of getting caught up in or being content with simply, simply doing the outward and just meeting your expectations. Does that make any sense to you? I can meet your expectations on the outside, but where is it between me and God? It goes back to like motive and things like that. Uh, I put down, I will have to pray more. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Okay. I need to rely more upon, more upon the Spirit of God. That's that concept. Okay, how does this affect me? These are the things I said, okay, this is what I need to work on. Now, they ask a second question. Okay, right at this point. Holiness of the heart is the holiness of habit. How should realizing outward change is a reflection of, and result of a heart change, how would that affect your relationship with other people, especially new Christians? This one had to, had to make me pause longer. If I know it's about the heart, and for them it's about the heart, how does that affect me in relationship to them? Right? What did you say? Everybody heard this, right? <laughs> she said, and it's profound, we need to have more patience with baby Christians. Make sense? We can have them do the outward, but what takes longer to get a hold of? The heart. Anything else? Any other thoughts that you would have that would fit this? Go ahead, Mike. What's that? Ooh. Ooh. Ooh, not being a stumbling block to new Christians, even though we have freedoms. And that would fit that whole idea of the New Testament that eating meats, different things that Paul said, I won't do it. Anybody else have any food? That's excellent. Uh, yes, Pam. Hmm.
Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Are you talking like, is there really a God? How do I know my Bible is real? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Did you hear everything? Okay. Just, I can't repeat everything. It was too much, too much, too profound. Yes, ma'am. We need to be transparent. Oh, excellent. Good, good. We need to be transparent to the new believers that worship. These are battles. These aren't abnormal struggles that that people go through. Yes. Sorry, I'm writing down your thoughts. They're excellent. I wasn't. I was so basic, and you guys are doing such a much better job. I wanted to have this for my own sake. Anything else? Yes, you're going to have to speak up loud, but you can't breathe. I know. Mm, mm, excellent. Wow, good stuff, guys. Excellent stuff. For me, I just wrote down, I need to make sure I have the right attitude towards those baby Christians. need to be careful not just to give them a set of rules, but to help them to realize, hey, this is, I don't know about you, it's easy to give my kids, when they were, we were raising them, it was easy to give them a set of rules. And as long as they were doing the rules, they were good kids. But good kids aren't the same as godly kids. And so getting the heart, and that goes back to what you were saying, Pam. Discipleship requires we challenge and correct the heart to know their heart. The transparency is excellent as well, that being able to be open, help them to understand it is a battle, a struggle, and we all struggle. Very good. I'm not going to go any further. We're going to pick up next week, you guys. 